from the National Talkie League. This is Overtime, a conversation today about how to make the world a better place by eating more beef and growing your own food in your backyard can save the world. Really fascinating conversation, actually, about a lot of stuff going on on the uh, agricultural level that we really don't consider very much. Lean back and enjoy. This is the National Talkie League. National Talkie League. Today we're talking with uh, Rob Avis of Verge Permaculture. Uh, Rob is a you know an expert on uh, all things uh, gardening and uh, climate a little bit as far as oh see now I'm making making him sound like giving him credentials he may or may not have but uh, Rob is a uh, let's see how how can I phrase this Rob is a Calgarian who has taken a lot of time and effort to uh, turn his yard into a uh, food forest. Uh, he's also an engineer, if I'm getting this correct, and uh, knows his way around uh, that kind of stuff too. So he's done a lot of work as far as uh, diverting water for his yard and uh, he's made a very cool furnace for his greenhouse. So we're going to talk to Rob about all that kind of stuff, uh, maybe get into some climate change talk. And I have probably talked enough. So welcome, Rob. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going uh, splendidly well, although I will say this, Rob, and this will impress you, but um, the frost really did a number on my vegetable marrows, and uh, that last zucchini that I had high hopes for uh, really only grew to be the size of my forearm. I was going for a complete limb there. <laughs> but otherwise, it's pretty good. Pretty good, thanks. Nice. Yeah, I'm surprised we didn't get more uh, zucchini and squash this year. It's a tough year with the lack of rain um, and the you know the heat should have done incredible things, but it was a, it was a tough year in its own right. Yeah, we're going to go pretty deep here, but um, let me just toss a shallow one out first of all. Why is it that I can't grow a carrot to save my life? But if I turn my back on the zucchini plant, there's like 50 of them, and they're trying to attack my neighbor's dog. I don't know, but I think that's why people say that you should start locking your car around August, well, July, August, so that you don't end up coming back to your car with a bunch of zucchinis in the passenger seat. <laughs> Zucchini, by the way, not a not an acceptable baseball bat substitute. Tried that. No. no. It does make okay cordwood, though, if you dry it out. <laughs> I, I think it's so funny when people are like, look how big the zucchini I grew was. And I'm just like, yeah, you forgot to pick it at the right time. This is what happened. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that's how I feel about the pumpkin competition, though, every year, though. Isn't it the same thing? Like, isn't the pumpkin contest just the laziest farmer award? <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. Or who can apply the most miracle grow? Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. <laughs> so, Rob, what uh, what got you into gardening? Well, gardening is just actually a small uh, thing that I do uh, compared to the, the larger picture of all of it. I'm actually, as you said, an engineer. Uh, I started off in the oil and gas industry. Um, building pipelines. Actually, before that, though, I grew up in a cake factory. Um, I'm actually Charlie in the chocolate factory disguised. And uh, we'd put out, you know, 40 to 100,000 cheesecakes in a day. So I'm actually from industrial food originally. Um, I grew up fixing all the machines and working on production lines, trying to see how many million cherries I could put on on cakes in a day. And then I, I went to university, got an engineering degree, which is kind of fitting with what I was doing at the cake factory. Thought I was going to go into food production equipment and then went to the oil and gas industry to start designing pipelines and gas facilities and generally got uh, disenchanted with the industry, not because I wasn't challenged, not because I wasn't getting tons of money, um, 
but because there was no opportunity to change status quo. And I came across a video called um, The End of Suburbia, which scared the crap out of me. It was all about peak oil. And, uh, and when I started trying to apply some of these ideas that they were talking about in, in The End of Suburbia in the oil and gas industry, I got um, all sorts of resistance. And so my wife and I decided to quit our jobs. She was also an engineer, or she st- she is an engineer, and I uh, was working for another oil company. And uh, we traveled the world. And we, we went to Denmark, we spent six months at a renewable energy institute, learning everything we could about biogas, solar thermal, solar photovoltaic. We fixed wind turbines, everything. Um, and then we came back to Calgary. We got into our Volkswagen Westphalia van, 1983, which was converted to run on vegetable oil. Never, ever buy a Volkswagen van. That's my uh, value for the evening. That's a whole other conversation. Anyways, we drove down to Mexico on vegetable oil. Uh, 25,000 kilometers later, we visited tons and tons of farms. We recognized that when we were in Denmark, that all this discourse, this was in 2007, 2008, about how we couldn't repower the world was BS. Um, And everywhere we went, there were different myths around the world with regards to what we could and couldn't do. And in Denmark, they were rapidly moving towards 100% renewable energy. And what we recognized was that the problem in the world was not actually an oil and gas created issue. Um, And we can get into this into the climate side of things. It's actually what we eat three times a day. Um, Our largest carbon load is actually as a result of industrial agriculture. So the choices that we make three times a day, the least expensive choices that we make generally when you compare it to you know, buying gasoline on an annual basis versus um, the food that you eat every meal, is having a larger consequence with regards to the ecosphere, biosphere than anything else. And so then we went into permaculture. We took a permaculture course and um, we've been teaching for the last 10 years. We've taught over 550 students uh, right across Canada. And... Um, when I'm not doing that, I design resilient homes, acreages, and farms for people that are a, um, a little bit more aware of the global crises that exist around them and who choose to put their money into alternative insurance packages that uh, basically help to power, water, and feed them in any situation. Yeah, but Rob, who doesn't do all that? <laughs> that's, that's really that's really incredible, man. Um, that's a that's a, a a very cool story, and I think the thing that I like the most about it uh, is is that you cashed in your chips and you decided like this is what I'm doing. This is kind of the the path that I'm going to walk down from now on. I think it's entirely admirable. So, yeah, I, I applaud you for it. Now I can't wait to try and dissect your brain and, and get into as much of that as that as <laughs> as we can. Um, wow. So, like, where to begin then? Let me just ask you this because gardening's come up once or twice. Um, how does what is permaculture? How do you define permaculture and what is that? How does that differ from what uh, I would know as growing my own food in a garden? So, if everything we do as a species right now is meeting human needs, so engineering, building roads, bringing gas to cities, natural gas, um, refining oil, running container ships all over the planet, um, there's only one criteria that all of those activities have in common. And that is to meet human needs. That's it. And as long as we meet human needs more efficiently, um, then that's good as far as society is concerned. Permaculture is focused around meeting human needs while enhancing ecosystemic health. 
And, okay. and so it's a new paradigm, basically. And so growing food is one of the easiest things you can do to actually change your footprint, footprint from a negative one to a positive one. Um, but then inside of all of that, we, we talk about low energy buildings, um, renewable energy systems, water harvesting, all of that stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm uh, many, many steps behind in this uh, game, but uh, uh, my wife's a, a, a avid gardener and always has been. And so over the years, she slowly started bringing me into the fold. And uh, I started with only growing things that I could eat. I'm not a big fan of growing flowers just because you know, all I can do is look at them, right? But I like growing something that I can eat at the end of the day. And so uh, we we went from that to uh, basically our, uh, you know, pulling up all the grass in our front yard. So we've got uh, just mostly flower beds and that kind of thing in the front yard. And then in the backyard, we've got four uh, six by six garden boxes and a few smaller ones. This year, we put in a, an eight by 10 greenhouse for the first time. Love that. Roger's plants are dead. Mine are still hanging around. Hey. Uh, <laughs> so my plants are drying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I find that every year I start, I get a little bit more and a little bit more interested. And uh, so recently we started talking about things like, uh, you know, changing our, uh, our eaves troughing around so that we can capture more, uh, you know, rainfall. Uh, you know, how can we improve on what we're doing? How can we make things better? And uh, it's just this never-ending streak. And I've found as a result of that, I think, um, that I also have been more conscious about my consumption of things. So I went from, you know, go to Starbucks, grab a cup, whatever, throw it out later to basically carrying my own, you know, thermos with me all the time and using it about 90% of the time, mm. you know, not wanting to waste that and and so, yeah, I think it's once you start down that path, you find that every little step becomes a little bit easier. But, uh, yeah, can you uh, can you speak on that at all about sort of that progression? Or Yeah, totally. I think that the most important thing in all of this is not to come at any of this through a place of guilt. And, um, uh, you know, it's taken us 12,000 years to get here in terms of, you know, the dawn of the um, agricultural revolution. And... Um, you know, transitioning a behemoth like this in, you know, a couple of decades is probably unreasonable. And so we all inherited the cultural baggage that, uh, you know, when we were born and because and, we were born into a specific generation or time period. And I think it's great to acknowledge where there's opportunities to make change and embrace it. And um, as you find new opportunities, um, try and always find the silver lining in it as opposed to doing it for the reasons that like being guilty as an example um, just doesn't work. Um, I've found over the years that people are attracted to honey and not to vinegar. And so um, in, in what we do, my whole mission is to um, not guilt people into changing, but to make it taste better, to make it more fun, more interactive um, so that they can't say no. It's just better. That's it. It's like, how do you get people into electric cars? You make them better than every other vehicle. And it's the same thing. And you make them cool too. And you make it part of a movement as opposed to telling people that they're killing the planet for their grandkids. Totally. The yeah. environmental movement was one of the biggest disasters ever. I mean, I, ironically, it actually got me here. I remember being in the North Vancouver Zoo watching the rainforest coming down. And I went home and wrote a letter to Brian Mulrooney, actually. Um, and... Uh, and so it was that like lasting image in my mind that has slowly led me into this path. But 
I would argue it's not the most effective way to create change. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we could leap into uh, into, the, into climate change on on this front, but it's like so many people who 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 carry the banner for for you know climate change is happening and we have to do something about it. They use it as a bludgeon against uh, against deniers or, or people who who just have questions really or who don't necessarily understand the science of it. Do you feel that 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 uh, environmentalist movement catastrophe is kind of happening again with climate change? Oh man, there's lots of stuff in there. Yeah. It's um <laughs> it's I I think a lot of the communication is there's there's two possibilities um and in my mind and one possibility is that uh, climate change isn't real. It's not the one that I necessarily believe. Or the, probably the more likely scenario is that climate change is so hyper complex um, that the scientists don't actually really know what's going on, but they have suspi- strong suspicions. And they recognize that most of us are goldfish and we can't really accept more than one thought at a time. That's probably the most likely scenario. And um, the the thing is, is that when people start getting emotional talking about climate change, which is a scientific observation, um, they're not practicing science anymore. <laughs> um, science is supposed to look at things through a logical lens. Um, and, um, you know, we're human, so we're all biased, I guess. We all have emotions. We, we're not androids yet. But... Um, the the thing is is that the um, approach that those people take is very unscientific, and if we're not willing to have a conversation about certain things, so I mean we can get into. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about um, the the things that are incongruent with some of the conversations going around yeah. around this subject? Absolutely, man. Free will. Okay, so um, there's a few things. One of the the most ironic conversations that I have on a fairly regular basis is the whole conversation around invasive weeds. Um, I don't believe in them and it gets me into a lot of trouble actually. But um, usually the people that are most obsessed about uh, invasive weeds are the ones that are also the most hardcore climate change um, evangelists. And what's crazy about this is that here we have a native ecosystem. Okay, so we've got this these two concepts, native versus invasive. So native are things that are here, invasive are things that are introduced. And what's crazy about this is like what what is native? What does that mean? And what it means is that these are the plants and animals that were here when the first botanists came onto the shore about 150 or 200 years ago. Right. I love it. It's this. not not native 10,000 years ago. It's not native 5,000 years ago. And so then the next thing is like, okay, well, why were those plants and species there? Well, because the indigenous people that were living here were actively burning and, and doing their own version of agriculture. And so they were actively manipulating their ecosystems in order to create more savanna so that they could create more game so that they could grow their tribes. And so if you want to return to the ecosystem that was here 150 years ago, you, you need to bring back the indigenous form of management, which means you need to bring back the indigenous people. And if you take that argument too far, we're actually not really invited to be here because we're technically invasive species. So that's the first piece. The second piece with all of that 
is that if you acknowledge that the climate is changing, which I think it is because it always has, and the question is really not if it's changing, but if we're making it happen faster, does it not seem ludicrous to be killing the very plants that seem to be adapting to the ecosystem that is adjusting with these changing climates and temperatures and wind and dryness? And we go around killing all these plants that are highly adaptive to that changing ecosystem. Is so that, sorry, this is the invasive piece. weeds, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, they're yeah. the most adapted plants, the ones that are yeah, able to they're thriving, right? Coat. They they thrive in highly degraded ecosystems right. in a in a very wide range of, of conditions. That's why when you go to man made deserts like in the Fertile Crescent, they're all weed species. Yeah. They're all the last remaining species that can survive in the harshest conditions. And they still criticize weeds in those ecosystems in spite of the fact that nothing grows. Um, the second thing is that we've been deforesting the planet for the last 12,000 years in a process called uh, deforesting, plowing, and desertifying through the process of agriculture. And so if you look at the mountains next time you're driving downtown from the east and you look at all those trees going up the hills, I'm just going to ask you guys a question. How much water does a tree have in it? Oh, yeah, I, I, I know this one. I'll leave it to you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a liar. Uh, oh, it's it's going to be a bigger number than I think it is. I'm going to guess uh, 80 liters as a percentage. 70 percent. Oh, oh, sorry. I didn't, didn't realize your percentage. <laughs> I would go. I would have gone way lower than that. I was going to be in like the 10 to 15 percent neighborhood. No, it's really high. And so when you're looking at the, the mountains, you're actually looking at an actively managed biological lake climbing the side of a hill. And trees take solar energy. Looks like you want to say something there. No, no, this is good. I'm, I'm, this, this agog look on my face is when someone has made me completely rethink something that I was looking at both this morning on the way to the mountains and this afternoon on the way home from the mountains. <laughs> so now let me ask you another question. If you go into a forest in the middle of winter, it's like minus 30 outside and you're cross country skiing and then you go into underneath the canopy, what happens to the temperature? Yeah, it gets warmer. It's warmer. And then in the summertime, it's super hot outside. You go underneath the canopy. It's substantially cooler. It's cooler. Yeah. It's, it's cooler. So trees are energy transducers. They take one form of energy and they transform it into another. So they take solar energy and CO2 and they turn it into wood. When any system is oversupplied with energy, it goes into chaos. Um, you can see that in your little kid that was walking behind your chair there, Dave. Um, we have to design our gardens for our kids because they're totally um, always creating chaos. So that's why you should always have a destruction zone in your garden somewhere. So we've cut down 50% of the trees in the world in the last 12,000 years. We've completely changed the albedo effect of the planet. And nobody's talking about this. So that's number two. Number three is that um, if we changed all the land to perennial pasture from North Dakota, south of the Mississippi, south to the Gulf of Mexico, east of the Mississippi, so just in the U.S., just by changing from annual to perennial agriculture and properly managing that land, the U.S. could be CO2 neutral in one year without changing any of their activities. So wow. when these things don't get discussed in the whole climate conversation, it makes me wonder a little bit what's going on and whether they're just simplifying it down so that the average peon can understand or if there's some sort of, and I hate to get into conspiracy theories with this stuff, but it's a pretty big deal. Um, and so my final take on it is, we should be doing all the stuff they're talking about because all the pollution out there is, is hurting us. 
irregardless of whether climate change is happening. So let's stop focusing on climate change, just clean up all the crap that we've put out in the world, and we'll all be better off for it. Yeah, I've never understood why people have a, a hard time uncoupling those two concepts. Like, I, I, I just don't bang the drum of climate change. Don't judge me. But I will tell you that you're a dick if you throw that chip wrapper on the ground, right? Like, if you pollute. And so, totally. you know, and so it's like, I proudly drive a vehicle. I think it's fantastic. Uh, you know, and I, I don't mind pumping gas into my car and I don't mind driving a truck on a big road trip. Like, these are things I've done and I don't feel guilty about it. But if you gave me the option to drive a vehicle that didn't shoot some black, you know, air, uh, black fumes out of the back of it, I would not argue with you. I would say that would be better. I'd be preferable. Especially if it cost you less. Well, now you're speaking to my heart Tesla, now, Three Rob. bucks? Yeah. Tough to road trip uh, around the country in the Tesla right now. Did you see the new charging stations that are being uh, sent right across the country? I have not. Oh, they're going to have charging stations uh, so that you can easily drive right across the country and no differently than with gasoline vehicles. They'll be out by the end of this year. All right. Everything that guy does is amazing to me. So. I mean, to that point, like you're saying, Roger, you you know, you see someone throw a chip bag out your window. It's it's annoying and offensive to you. But ten or fifteen years ago, it might not have been. You know, twenty years ago in the seventies, anyway, it wasn't a big deal or it wasn't as big of a deal. It seems to be becoming more that way. And I think it's that whole idea of uh, I'm trying to think of how to put it as simply as possible. But if when you know better, you do better, right? So once you know, once you've internalized in your head, like oh, I can't do this anymore. It doesn't make sense to do this. This is the wrong way to do this, right? Mm-hmm. I'm wasting energy if I leave the light on in this room. So I'm going to turn the light off. And if I leave the room and I go, oh, I left the light on, I'm going to go back in and turn turn it off because I've internalized that lesson now. And I think it's that whole step-by-step as you get further down that path, you go, okay, here's something else that that probably should be done or needs to be done. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could call that guilt in a way, but it's also partially just sort of the a realization, you know, it's, it's part of growing and learning, you know? Totally. Yeah. Just basic hygiene at this point. So, <laughs> so it's like okay. putting, go ahead. Well, I want to get, I want to ask you a question about hurricanes, right? Because you know, the trope about, um, uh, look, I, it snowed in June. How can you say climate change is happening, right? Like that's an argument that if somebody makes, there's a scientist or or somebody who's there quick to shoot them down that the weather on a particular day does not equal climate change. But I feel like, and, and I'd like to have this explained out of me if possible, um, that when you see Hurricane Harvey or Hurricane Irma and you say, oh, the hurricanes are so bad now, that's evidence of climate change. I feel like they're doing the same thing. They're taking one event and saying that this is an indication, a clear indication that all the climate change science is obviously correct. Oh, man. Again, there's so much stuff in there. And there's like this comes back to basic statistics and understanding kind of what's concrete and what's not in statistics itself. And so there's a great book written called um, The Black Swan by an author called uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he talks about black swans as um, rare events that occur outside of of the tail of a Gaussian distribution, which is the bell curve, essentially, that you'll find um, in universities and in schools and um, when you have a kid, they look at where your kid sits on that Gaussian distribution to see whether he's above or below average in his weight, height, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, there are certain phenomena that you can 
um, you can mathematically plot on a Gaussian bell curve and a human body weight is one of them. So if you get beyond a certain size as a human, you're probably going to die. And like we can predict approximately what that number looks like. And you don't really have people like you'll never have a human that's 2000 pounds kind of thing. Like probably five or 600 pounds is the biggest you'll ever get. And you can never have a human that's negative 50 pounds. Um, that's not possible. And so we can like really tightly bound um, those, those characteristics. Um, natural phenomena is totally different. And so we have about 100 years plus a bunch of ice core data, which gives us certain metrics within the climate regime. Um, to be able to build that Gaussian distribution, which is what most engineers and architects use when they're designing things. And um, other people would use it too to try and predict what, how likely certain events are to occur. Well, just because you have one black swan, one event that sits outside of that distribution doesn't necessarily mean you can't draw any conclusions from it. It's one data point. And, um, and this is another kind of thing that really bothers me about climate change is that we, we create all of these um conversations around these these black swans like for example was the were the floods in calgary a black swan uh or sorry was that climate change induced and like how do you even answer that um and there's all this other flooding that's occurring everywhere too right like uh, in 2009 i think there was the number one highway in saskatchewan got blown out and everybody's like oh climate change climate change climate change and it's like really like the soils in Saskatchewan had anywhere from 13 to 20% soil carbon 150 years ago. And now the average soil carbon level in the soils on the prairies is less than 3%. So to put that in perspective, a 1% increase in soil carbon on a hectare of land will increase the water holding capacity of that soil by 144,000 liters per hectare. So if you take soil from 20% soil carbon down to 3 First, you've released enormous amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere through the process of tillage and chemical agriculture. And number two, you um, have reduced the soil water holding capacity by many orders of mag many factors. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you have one rain event, which may have been normal 100, 150 years ago, but the soil has nowhere to put it because there's no soil carbon. So how do you account for that? Like, how do you actually account for how our landscapes, our land form has changed its ability to harvest water. All the farmers that are going big ag now are taking out all the wetlands. So all of the livers and kidneys of the prairie are, are gone now because they want to plant crops there. And so is it climate change or have we just, right? Yeah. do we have enough horsepower to basically manipulate the ecosystem enough to change how it works that sounds like it's analogous to the reason why a city won't let you pave your front lawn because they need your lawn to catch some water exactly right okay cool totally. yeah yeah um and before we started recording you were talking a little bit about uh about the nutrient issue with some plants did you want to talk a bit about that now yeah we could talk a little bit about that i think before we go on to that it, it's like I think in all of this, there's two, there's like two things that one, one main thing to take out of all this climate change stuff is if you believe all the messaging that you're being given right now, at best, you're effed. Like, <laughs> that's the best, right? <laughs> that's the best. <laughs> so it's like, why would you even listen to it? And so, but when you actually start to critically think about some of the messaging that's being sent to you and you use a little bit of statistics and a little bit of analytics and a little bit of logic, 
we're not effed. We can totally turn this thing around. And I, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on all the farmers that I'm surrounded by right now that are actively putting a 1% increase of soil carbon back into their soil every year. So it doesn't take a thousand years to grow topsoil. And we don't need carbon sequestration plants to put carbon underground. We just need to grow good beef, literally. <laughs> and wow. we can turn all of this stuff around very, very quickly. I'm sold already. <laughs> it's it's a delicious word. future. Yes. yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, another correlation, and, and this is a funny thing, is like you can correlate any two pieces of information, right? Right. So yeah. you can correlate cancer rates and CO2, and you probably find a positive correlation. But are they related? Who knows? Um, and so there's another scientist that's recently come out talking about the nutrient collapse, which has been documented now for about 50 years. And most of our foods, there's, there's a great book called The End of Food by, I think it's Stephen Pollack. And uh, a wonderful, if, wonderful book if you like scary stuff. Um, so don't read it lightly. But he, he documents all of the studies around vitamin C and like the micro and macronutrient declines in all of the food that we currently consume. And so a, a recent study, which is actually interesting, it's, it's taking the internet by storm right now. Um, and I, I can always tell what that's the case when I hear about this news outside of my little bubble of eco people. But um, um, he's saying that an increase in CO2 is is actually causing um, plants to photosynthesize faster, which has been documented. They're going about they're photosynthesizing at about 15 percent um, higher rate now than they were um, two or three decades ago. And. Um, the increased photosynthesis is um, displacing or it's creating more sugars, more carbohydrates, and it's displacing the, the micronutrients that the plants would normally take up. But I, I don't know if, it, if, if that's necessarily true. And I, I think that the article is interesting because I think it, it sheds light on a much, well, you, hard to say larger issue than climate change, but larger in the human context that our foods literally have no nutrition, which is like the biggest case to go and garden. Um, the biggest case to go and grow your own food, even if it's only a small amount, is to actually get food that will actually heal you and you know keep you healthy. Um, so, so the larger piece is that literally, if you're buying food from the grocery store, there's almost nothing in it. Um, is it being caused by climate change? I, I would say it's being caused by industrial agriculture, personally, but. Um, What's good about the article, though, is if, if you look it up, is that uh, the scientist does admit there's a lot of holes in it. So I think it's good from the perspective that it's kind of bringing this stuff to light, which is interesting, which should encourage more people to grow their own food. Yeah, I think that last thing you said there is really cool because – and again, if I step off the path, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll correct me. But I've always sort of thought about like when one of these reports comes out, the first thing in it, the abstract, is essentially – um, we were wondering about this thing, so we came up with a question, and then we designed an experiment that would try to answer the question positively or negatively, and uh, this is what we came up with, as opposed to, hey, look what we found. Don't dispute it. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, um, one of my favorite authors, Nassim Taleb, you wrote The Black Swan. He's written a bunch of other ones as well. They're almost impossible to read, but um, they're worth getting through. And he talks about how good science should actually document all of the failures as well as all of the successes. Right. He says you can actually learn more from 
failures than you can from successes. And I completely agree with that. Um, but a lot of times science is pretty bunk because it, especially pharmaceutical science, where they're specifically asking a question or they're designing some chemical and then trying to figure out where it applies and only looking for those positive correlations and hoping that it doesn't kill anybody. Right. That was the worst book review ever, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, you know what? I, I've been recommending him for a number of years and I, uh, I was at a public event not that long ago and I read a pretty big, uh, pretty regular email to a fairly large list. And someone came up to me and said, I'm never listening to your book recommendation ever again. Nassim Taleb is the worst author in the world. So um, he's, he's a tough guy to read, but it's totally worth Like if you're, if you're like some of the stuff you've heard about tonight, um, you'd find his stuff very interesting. That person has never read George RR R. Martin. <laughs> what has he written? He's a, the game of Thrones guy. <laughs> oh, right. Oh man. Yeah. He's hard. He's hard to get through. <laughs> yeah. You need the patience yeah. of a butcher's block to get through some of his work. <laughs> um, so one thing I wanted to touch on too, we were talking about the idea that, uh, that, uh, the food is changing and, and the nutrients in the food too. So it struck me, uh, we were thinking about watermelons the other day, right? So it's, it's pretty rare that you find a watermelon that has any seeds in it anymore, right? Because we've basically bred those right out of it. And I think I had read somewhere that, you know, if you were able to, to go back a couple hundred years and taste a strawberry or, or taste an apple, it would be a very different thing that you were eating because we seem to sort of, you know, breed selectively for the flavors or the tastes that we want. And it strikes me that, that, you know, more sugar or higher sugar content seems to be what we're aiming for. Is that your experience as well? Or totally another great book, uh, um, called Pandora's seed. And it's the hidden cost of, I think it's the subtitles, the hidden cost of agriculture. He talks about how, um, in, um, human physiology, uh, and actually, actually, if you look at any ecosystem, most ecosystems, but we'll speak about the Northern one, cause that's where we're in right now. Um, sugar was only ever available in our ecosystem in a very small window. And, um, basically um, if you guys are on a standard Western diet, um, you know how hard it is to say no to sugar. And um, your body is completely addicted to sugar because it's a basic survival mechanism. And so over the last 12,000 years, we've bred crops that have higher and higher carbohydrate loads um, to basically um, quell or meet our the basic human instinct that we have to eat carbohydrates and carbohydrates raise blood sugar which release insulin and insulin is a master hormone which stores fat um, and so i actually don't think gaining fat is a bad thing um, but the thing is is that what sugar would have done the, the role of sugar in any ecosystem if, if you weren't in an agricultural society was a signal that winter was coming and the addictive characteristics of that sugar were basically sending the body messages to um to eat as much of it as possible so you could store fat and get through the winter. And then when the sugar disappeared, your body um, came out of glucosis, which is the process of burning sugar, and moved into ketosis, which is the process of turning fat into ketones or water-soluble um, fats that your body can burn. Um, and so when agriculture came around, basically we started uh, selectively breeding plants and crops that could, that, that could store for very long periods of time, most of them carbohydrate-based, 
And um, while we were still toiling in agriculture, it kind of worked for us for a while, although there's lots of books written about how our bodies became weaker and shorter and our teeth fell out and all these things compared to hunter-gatherer tribes. And so eating carbohydrate diets 12 months of the year were basically sending signals to our body that we were going into the longest winter ever and to store tons of fat. And there you have the obesity crisis that we currently have in our society. Okay. I don't know why my mind did this while you were explaining that because I found that really fascinating. But at the same time, I was sort of like, uh, I think you triggered it when you said, you know, we were toiling in agriculture, like working plows and stuff like that. So we were able to stay fit sort of. But I kind of think to myself, uh, what if we just had better winter jackets? Would we <laughs> <laughs> Like back at that time, if we had warmer skins, we might not have needed the carbs. <laughs> This is where having a time machine would be really interesting and then being able to run multiple experiments. So you go back in time and you'd be like, hey, guys, why don't we just make jackets instead of growing food? Brilliant. <laughs> Maybe a- that's what the aliens are doing with all those guys, all those uh, hillbillies down in the States who keep getting <laughs> captured by UFOs and probed, hey? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there's something interesting in all that to me too, like – there's like some economy and some situation in all this. And, and I sort of feel like, um, um, you know, on, on one hand, Rob, maybe you're describing like, uh, this utopia where we can have permaculture and we're constantly growing crops that, that feed us, but also replenish the earth. But then you sort of like, you know, there's somebody who's up on the Canadian shield living in a town that has winter eight months of the year going, well, Hey, what about us? Um, how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And um, so we get a lot of people coming to our classes that are vegan and vegetarian. And um, and for lots of different reasons, like vegan and vegetarians will be vegan or vegetarian for ethical reasons, for political reasons, or for health reasons. <clears throat> and my whole take on this is that if you look at the, at the globe and you go from the North Pole and down to the equator, um, you can actually – you can make some really broad statements about what a good human diet should be. And there's plenty of science around this. There's another good book called um, uh, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It by a guy named Gary Tobbs. Incredible, incredible book. Everybody should read this if you want an understanding of how the human body works. Love that book. It's a great book. Totally. And so we can say with fairly a fairly high percentage of, of um, uh, prob- I guess, a high probability that we know that humans need fats that we need some carbohydrates occasionally, um, and we need protein, um, and we need micro and macronutrients, and we need insoluble fiber. Like there's all, all these things that we can say. It's not the Canadian food guide either. Um, and um, and so how you get that is going to depend on where you live on that spectrum between the North Pole and the equator. So when people come to my class and give me a huge spiel about why the world should be vegan – or how much better it would be. A vegan diet in this ecosystem is completely destructive. When you get up into the shield where you're talking about, it's even more destructive because you've got to ship the stuff everywhere. So you should be eating like seal blubber and whales and whatever else is abundant up there. And it's amazing if you look at um, um, studies done by doctors that went around the world, it's the Inuit were some of the healthiest people in the world. They never died of heart disease or MS or any of those um, degenerative diseases of agriculture, which is what they're now starting to be called. And, um, 
And so my response to vegans and vegetarians is like, by all means, be a vegan and a vegetarian, but go live where you can get the right fat, um, carbohydrate, micro and macronutrient and protein um, uh, proportions in a place like India or Central America, because avocado is like your fat, your, your basically your pork grows off trees, <laughs> right? Our avocados here have four legs and they snort a little bit. And um, that's where our sustainable source of, of, of lipids come from is, is, is actually, in fact, Gary Tobbs calls the pig uh, 50% olive oil and 50% coconut. Okay, that made me reframe the pig in a very different way than you got me thinking about mountains earlier, Rob. <laughs> I'm thinking about just adding avocado and coconut the next time I cook some pork. Now. <laughs> yeah, because here's, here's what I'm thinking. If I put like a bottle of olive oil on the barbecue for eight hours, I'm not coming out with, a, with something that my friends are going to want to visit me for, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly the response that I would get when I served that platter. <laughs> what do you think about lab-raised meat, though? I saw China saying that they're going to buy lab-grown lab, uh, or lab what – what's the proper verb here? Lab meat, man-made meat from Israel. I think it's great, and here's why. Um, it's going to make farmers that are actually growing things by hand um, – like we're not going to think of them as pigs anymore. We're going to think of them as Rolexes with feet on them. So there's going to be a certain subset of individuals that – um, we'll be totally fine eating that stuff. And then there's going to be a whole other class of people that be like, nope, I'm not touching it. And I will pay any price for somebody to hand raise um, an animal for me to eat. So I, I see it as an opportunity. I see it as a, a way of creating um, uh, polarization. And um, I, I also think it's scary as hell, to be honest. Um, like, like actually thinking it makes me think about some of these science fiction movies that we've that have come out in the last little while i don't think it's necessarily more ethical i, I think it's just weird to be honest but but what one of the things that i do a lot and a lot of people that come to my classes they people that want to get into regenerative farming and um, i see it as an opportunity to revitalize that whole space and um, be able to uh, differentiate your product look our stuff isn't grown in a petri dish it's actually grown with sunlight and and like, so most people don't realize this, but when you buy a pig that's, that's actually been raised outside, it's fat is full of vitamin D. Like 200 years ago, we didn't have vitamin D tablets. We just ate animals that were raised outside and they accumulated vitamin D in their fats and we ate them and we were healthy. But now all of, all of our animals are grown inside of factories and they're vitamin D deficient. And so, and then we live inside of factories or feedlots called cities and, and we're all vitamin D deficient as well. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, so I, uh, one of the uh, Freakonomics podcasts, they were talking about the concept of whether it's better to have uh, food locally raised or, or grown or whether it's better to grow the food all in one place and then ship it, whether it was uh, economically. Of course, they're always concerned with the economy of things. And their conclusion was basically that, you know. In, in California, there's areas where they raise, you know, 90% of, of North America's food kind of thing and then and then ship it. And that that was uh, economically speaking, it was uh, it was better to do that than it would be to have a bunch of farms all over the place locally. I'm, I suspect you might have a slightly different opinion on that. Yeah. So this is going to totally blow your socks off. <clears throat> um, 
So if you look at it from an entropy perspective, so look, we're talking about physics here and like and a measure the measure of disorder. Uh, let me just back up a couple of steps. So have you guys been to the West Kootenays to the like where Nelson is? Yep. Okay, so there's a ferry that you have to go across. Right. You go through Creston and you cross a ferry to go over to the other side so you can drive to Nelson. Um, a lot of those lakes, they have barrels on the back and they actually are spreading fertilizer into the lake. And it's you don't notice it unless you go and unless you read some of the signs and stuff. And it's, it's kind of, it's not obvious. And so if you do a bit of research um, on why they're throwing phosphorus and nitrogen into these lakes, what you'll find out is that when they put the hydroelectric dams up, they stop the, the largest nitrogen and phosphorus pump on the planet, um, which was the salmon run. So salmon go out into the ocean, they go and pick up nutrients, they bring it back up the rivers, and then the bears carry them out into the forests and they fertilize the forests, and then other animals take it on further from there. And so when they um, got rid of the salmon, it, it completely collapsed the ecosystem around it. They can measure it in tree rings. They can measure it in the animals living around those dams. And so the way they made up for it was they started adding the equivalent amount of phosphorus and nitrogen to the lakes in order to fertilize them so that they could recharge the ecosystems. So one of the things you need to think about in the food equation beyond economics is the nutrient cycle. We have 20 years of phosphorus left on this planet. Nobody's talking about this. There's 20 years of mineable phosphorus before we run out and industrial agriculture can no longer continue down the path it's going. And luckily, there's phosphorus is elemental. And so all you have to do is farm with fungi. You basically have to make sure that you're not tilling the soil and that you've got the right um, fungal associates in the soil to make sure that your plants can go out and like... The, a plant with the proper fungal associates will have an 800 times increase in surface area when it talks to the soil. So it increases the amount of area that that plant can harvest minerals and water from. So when we come back to the conversation, Sorry, hang about on a second. Can I stop you? Because I I'm trying to. This is really deep, and I'm trying to keep up. Can you explain yeah, is, that about the surface area with the plant if it's got fungal associates in the soil? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, they've measured specifically trees and um, trees that have the right fungal associates, um, their root system will increase in surface area or equivalent surface area by up to 800 times. So the fungi actually infects the root of the plant and it basically creates, sets up a relationship. So the plant is going out and photosynthesizing. So up to 50% of the sugars that a tree will collect through the process of photosynthesis will actually be fed to its microbial associates, one of which is fungi. The fungi then says, I can't photosynthesize, so I'll trade you carbohydrates. In exchange, I'll go out and get phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium, and all the other micronutrients that you can't get access to that are dispersed and far away and not in human mineable quantities. So there's no actual shortage of phosphorus. Um, We've just been farming in a way that doesn't work with fungi. And so as we move to no-till systems and we start increasing diversity and pumping more um, glucose into, or um, glomulin into the soil, sugars, um, those fungal associates can start to form and then that phosphorus problem goes away. So it's going to actually force the complete redesign of industrial agriculture, which is super exciting because um, it has to happen. But coming back to your question about local farms – um, the whole conversation on cowspiracy and all these things about how bad meat is, is complete BS, pardon the pun. And, um, 
because here's the thing it it's um when you look at the cow so you know they have all these stats about how much water a cow takes right so i don't even know what the numbers are but they're large and then and then they'll be like yeah and cows produce methane and cows eat grain and and like the thing is is that most urbanites are completely ignorant because we're two or three generations removed from a farm about how farming works and so th they don't have the context to be able to critique what's actually being said and they just kind of take it verbatim for what it is and so the first thing is that when a cow drinks water do you think that if it drinks 100 liters of water that it keeps 100 in its body of course not where does it go it I, ends up back on the ground i've seen evidence of uh, this by the way lots of evidence. yeah of no it's like there's really clear evidence a high probability that this actually occurs it's pretty yellow the evidence though it's not clear <laughs> at all, really. totally i think i've seen this more than you have rob <laughs> go on please <laughs> so it's it's interesting because it's like well no it actually doesn't take that much water in fact when a cow eats grass it it actually will increase the available nitrogen in the ecosystem by up to 10x because it's pre-digesting the cellulose. And then the next thing they say is all the grain that it consumes. And it's like, well, cows shouldn't be eating grain in the first place. And then the next thing that goes on is, is um, they talk about, um, um, you know, how inefficient the cow is, all the food that it requires. And you could be growing vegetables and other, you know, plants in, in its space. But, Here's, here's an interesting saying, the inefficiency of the cow represents the efficiency of the ecosystem. And that's where that saying, that old uh, farmer saying, you should never sell anything off the farm that doesn't walk off the farm. So you should, you're better off to sell cows off of a farm because you'll mine less nutrients out of it because most of it ends up back on the ground than selling carrots. A carrot will mine 100% of what you pull out of the ground. And so if you're bringing carrots from California, it has a way larger footprint from a nutrient perspective and from an entropy perspective than if you're eating beef. And so um, there's a kind of a teacher within the permaculture space that says, and I think he's totally right, the lowest impact diet you can have, you're going to love this, um, guy, is eating a 100% diet of grass-fed beef if you live in a city. So if you don't grow any of your own food... You'll have a lower impact. And here's the other thing, the whole methane argument, that's complete BS because properly managed cows will actually sequester more carbon than they emit. How many elements that humans make actually can say that? So cows are out there massaging the grass with their hooves, increasing the available nitrogen, cycling up that ecosystem if it's properly managed. And that cow is actually a net CO2 sink. This is the, so greatest, we should this is the greatest moment in podcast history. Just uh, for the listeners, uh, Roger was literally licking his lips. I was when, almost uh, crying. I was talking about a hundred percent grass-fed beef diet. Oh, I was almost crying too. <laughs> I can tell you something though. Here, this is what this. Here's the great irony in all of this. Um, I just been diagnosed with hemochromatosis, and which means I have iron overload in my blood, and like red meat is not <laughs> the best thing for me to be eating right now. But I'm, I, I say, f it. I say I got to do my part for the world. It's, this is not about one man. This is about one planet. I got to do my part. <laughs> you know, I had a high iron. Have you had a um, Have you had a bunch of strep throat recently? No. 
Okay. I think I had strep throat recently, but I've had uh, this arthritic pain. Uh, I, I describe it as arthritic pain in my hands for um, years now. And so it's like uh, I, I finally went and got diagnosed and I've got one crummy allele. And then I found 20 bucks. But what were we saying about uh, about all those cows? <laughs> well, there's lots of other grass-fed meats you can consume that don't have high iron. All right. Good call. And consume it with green tea and you'll be good. I've heard that green tea will reduce your iron uptake by, I think it's 50%. Ooh, really? Yeah. Cause I'll try anything right now. Here's my, here's my thing about, um, I'm going to put that in a category, Rob, with, with, uh, I'm going to put it in a category adjacent to Gwyneth Paltrow remedies just because, <laughs> okay. Cause I haven't I, done the- I am pretty good looking. So, you know. <laughs> This is going in like right next to put a jade egg in your vagina. Uh, but no, but here's my point. I don't think that drinking green tea is going to be harmful to me. It may not have the health benefit that I'm really shooting for, but I like green tea and I don't think it's going to do me too much ill. So I'm going to give that one a crack and report yeah, back. Yeah, totally. You could also try some bloodletting, Roger. That is actually a, the other uh, – yeah, totally. It's a common treatment. I'm going with um, phlebotomy though, Dave. Bloodletting I don't like and blood donation just doesn't work for me. So I'm going to do <laughs> phlebotomy instead. should start a fight club. <laughs> That's it. That's the ticket. So, so Rob, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, gardening and about reducing guilt and that kind of thing. So if someone's listening, they live in Calgary, they've got, a, they've got their yard, that kind of thing. What sort of things can we, just the, the average person, start doing to move things along to help out? Um, I'd say the first thing is help yourself out. So do it for yourself first. And, um, you know, it's, it's this whole concept of doing less harm is is i think is doing more harm i think it's it's changed the footprint you can't help but have a footprint on this planet if you weigh more than zero pounds you're gonna leave a footprint behind and so the only thing choice you have is what kind of footprint are you going to leave and we can be just as positive as we are negative if the if the most negative thing on the planet is the nuclear bomb then what's the most positive and, and like, it doesn't mean that you have to go out and solve the climate change thing all on your own. Literally just putting a garden in your backyard will have cascading impacts on, on your, on your family, uh, on your community. I mean, the minute you guys probably know this, the minute you put a garden in your front of your house, it completely changed the conversation with your neighbors. Um, probably the biggest reason to grow a garden, uh, is, is literally your own health though. And, um, with all the research going on right now around the microbiome, I mean, the microbes that are living on these leaves, which by the way, like kale leaves, for example, um, are insoluble fiber, which is the main food source for the microbiome, all the microbes living in your, your gut. gut. Yeah. You know, eating raw kale out of your garden is the cheapest and most effective probiotic that you can consume on a regular basis. Um, and, Gardening can be profitable. I mean, I grew a, a kale plant last year with 50 leaves on it, and Community Natural Foods charges a buck a leaf. So that plant is worth 50 bucks. I get two to three of them in a square foot. So it's $150 a square foot. I did the math on this. If a farmer near Calgary grew kale, and they would never grow, they shouldn't grow a monocrop of kale because there'll be all sorts of problems associated with it. But let's just say that they did. That's like $600,000 an acre in kale. And like how much kale is coming up from California? It's crazy. Stuff grows like weeds up here. Yeah. 
So just grow a garden. <laughs> I love it. Hey, uh, I, I've watched some of your videos, and, and Rob, we're going to link to them in the show notes for this podcast, as well as to the extensive reading list that you've given us. Um, but you, you're, you've got, um, what do you call it? Not an urban forest, but what do you, a uh, food forest, right? Yeah, we converted our front lawn to a food forest. And um, basically, it mimics the same layers of a forest. So it's got five different layers in it. You can have up to seven. And every layer is edible or medicinal or can be used for tea or whatever. Um, we just decided we didn't want to cut the lawn. And so <laughs> instead, we that. just eat it. And, um, you know, we live in the Bronx, which is why I usually have a bulletproof vest on. <laughs> um, but it's actually the best place in the city. We live in Forest Lawn. Nobody criticizes you for stuff like this out here because everybody's too busy trying to make a living. And um, our neighbors love it. It's It's been really great. Um, we've had so many compliments. People drive from all over the city to come and see this thing. You can actually go onto Google Maps and find us and you can watch the progression. Um, probably shouldn't get my address out though, you know, because <laughs> it's going public and stuff, but yeah. everything's public these days anyways. But yeah, basically apples, sea buckthorn, mint, currant, strawberry, rhubarb, goji, cherries, saskatoons, raspberries, um, asparagus, Russian almond, Russian olive, um, all sorts of stuff. I love it. I, li- I like that you mentioned sea buckthorn. There's a distillery in Edmonton that is making gin. I think they're using sea buckthorn in their gin. Nice. And it's sort of like, oh, how crazy and innovative. And I'm pretty sure one of them is on record. And don't, I'm not quoting anybody here, but I'm pretty sure one of them came close to saying, um, not really. This stuff is like, we're lousy with sea buckthorn. Like if you know where to go, there's just way too much of it in this part of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it grows really well here. It's uh, definitely well adapted. But I don't have to go uh, nuts and do my whole front lawn, right? I can do like a food forest in a, in a four by eight planter box. Yeah, I'm not really. No, it's um, the thing is, like, it, it, when you're driving around the city, you'll see all these people with lawns and a, like a caliper tree on the front lawn and this tiny little circle of soil around it. And it, that tree is the saddest tree in the world. You need to go and give it a hug because trees don't like growing with little tiny brown soil things around them in, in the middle of a monoculture lawn. They want their buddies there. Um, that's where those their buddies are what actually creates all sorts of unique relationships within the microorganisms under the soil as well. So you do need a, you know, a fairly decent size. Um, but let's say you just had an apple tree in your front lawn. If you put three shrubs around that and then you put some herbs underneath it, like rhubarb and asparagus, and then maybe some uh, and strawberries and like, that's kind of like a forest garden in a way. And he'll be way happier um, than 99% of the trees that get planted out there in these Auschwitz style plantings. And that's really how the trees look at it. <clears throat> so, so I have cost- three, I've, sorry, I have three apple trees in my backyard. They're fairly well spaced. So if I want to like make the trees happier, increase the production, should I be doing that? Should I be planting some herbs and some, some berries and that kind of thing around the base of the trees that we're saying? Or? Yeah, totally. Put some alfalfa in there. Um, for nitrogen fixing, you can put a clover ground cover in. Um, strawberries are great. Rhubarb, um, honey berries, a great one. It's one of the first producers of um, of berries in our ecosystem. Uh, Saskatoon and like some cherry shrubs. Like you can basically just fill it in. And essentially, what you're trying to do. So if you if you space your trees apart enough, then anytime you have an intersection, like in the middle of those two trees, just put a the next layer down in between them. And then between that next layer, so let's call it a honeyberry, 
then between the honeyberry and the apple, put the next layer down underneath it. And so you just start stacking layers. You really are just trying to use, and this comes back to the climate change conversation, like in a forest, a forest will use 86% of the sunlight that hit, hits the forest, whereas a wheat crop might be 15 or 20%. So you're just trying to stack, you're basically building a solar collector and you're trying to put high light plants in the top of the canopy. And then as you move down, you get plants that can work with less and less light until you're at the, the ground level where they're happy growing in the shade. So things like mint and stuff at the bottom. I like uh, it. So- it's kind of like a bed, right? Like you got pillows, decorative pillows, and then like a nice duvet, and then a blanket, like a wool blanket, and then a, <laughs> and a nice sheet, Egyptian cotton bed sheets, and then some lingerie. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, right? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, if you ever go away, Rob, I could teach your class if you if, if you need a, a sub. <laughs> All right. Food for us as lingerie. <laughs> so, yeah, I no need to give your address out here, but uh, we will give out your website, which is uh, Verge Permaculture. Is it ver, per, per, verge.com or is it ver, per, permaculture.com? Vergepermaculture.ca. Oh, .ca. Okay. So there you go. So yeah, you should go and check it out. And then you also do tours and that kind of thing. Do you not? Or? Yeah, we have tours in the summer. Uh, no more this year, but, um, and then we teach courses. We have, uh, several design courses that we teach per year and, uh, and then we do this professionally as well. So we design resilient homes, acreages and, and farms. Well, and I love the fact that you're, you're looking at it, taking it on from a positive tack. And the whole no guilt thing is awesome and making me feel really good about my yard and what I do with my days and that kind of thing. And, uh, and yeah, like I was saying earlier, that, that whole idea that once you start growing things, you're like, oh, cool. What else can I grow? Oh, that worked really well. I wonder if I should grow some of this now. You know, we've got the, like I said, we got the, the greenhouse for the first time. So, uh, we only were able to put it up in May. Uh, so now I'm really excited for next season to get stuff growing earlier. Totally. And then figure out what we want to grow in that greenhouse and uh, and off to the races, you know? Yeah, try growing microgreens this winter. They're super easy. And, and you can uh, sell them to high-end restaurants, Dave, for like $9,000 a bushel. So, much. sorry, do you mean during the winter that I can grow yeah. stuff in the greenhouse still? Or just inside. Oh, okay. Yeah, like you can take those plastic figurines behind you and turn them into <laughs> productive uh, food crops. <laughs> I love it. My uh, my background gets more conversation on this podcast than I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes my Muhammad Ali or my Beastie Boys. I did boys. like the Beastie Boys. Yeah, that's pretty dope, right? That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, hey Rob, this has been a real treat, man, and 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 so much fun. Thanks so much for. Uh, um, I don't know. There's, I think there's maybe not enough really fun science conversations going on in the world, and we just had one. So thank you. <laughs> Great guys, thanks for having me out. You've been listening to the National Talking League. Show notes from this episode can be found at nationaltalkingleague.com. Support for this podcast comes from you. Please share it on social media, give a five-star review in your favorite podcast store, and connect with us on Facebook. On behalf of Roger Kincaid and Dave Ware, thank you.